Welcome to Tipping the Balance. I'm Katie Hickey, your host, and today we hear from Tony Crock. In this episode, Tony explains how beautiful things are starting to come back into her life again after a difficult year in rehab. Tony has had a complex medical history and was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis at the age of 30. During our chat, she explains how she sees a link between addiction and the trauma caused by illness. As Tony says during the interview, shame survives in the dark but dies in the light and she hopes that by sharing her experiences, this might help others who are dealing with addiction at the moment. Hi Tony, welcome to Tipping the Balance. I am so happy to talk to you again and I'm really excited to see your face. Uh, we met each other when we did uh, introduction to counselling course in December and it was all done by Zoom and I think there were about 10 of us or 10 or 12 of us on the course and I remember you know you could just see everyone's little squares with their face and I saw you immediately you stood out to me on the screen and you were kind of peering down the the camera quite close up and and then one of the first exercises we had we were paired randomly together and we had to do a little um, like icebreaker and introduce one another and just give a bit of background about our lives and yeah you and I were together and you blew me away like the first exercise boom Tony was there and um, yeah I think we felt like an affinity for one another throughout the course do you want to just maybe give a little bit of introduction like who you are who am I it's a good question I still don't know um so I am first of all I was on the course with Katie and I like to I always scan a room in fact my therapist which we'll get into later Camino when I was in Spain said to me I'm a little bit like a soldier who scans a room for danger I walk in well, I mean this is this is not a room I was walking into it's a zoom room I walk in and I look for the people like that I think are my people that I will feel safe with and um, for various reasons, which we can go into later. But as I saw Katie's face, it was this open face. Besides the fact that she's stunningly gorgeous, I just thought, I like this girl. And, and I'd be pro, I'd be, I tend to jump to conclusions about people. Part of who I am, I'm like, in or out. And she was in immediately, immediately <laughs> in the tribe. I'd, I'd spotted her and I was just so happy for that because I was looking around I couldn't I could not find those familiar faces when I saw Katie I felt safe and I could see that we had very similar ways of thinking and looking at people and ideas so there's the start of our our forever friendship what was it that brought you to the to the course because I thought that was quite interesting okay so here it goes guys I have a complicated medical history, mind history, body history. Actually, it's really, really bizarre that we're doing this podcast now mm -hmm. because it will be a year that I'm in recovery. Mm -hmm. And um, a year is a, you know, they say it takes a year for you to start feeling and seeing the changes around you. And they also say it takes a year for beautiful things to start happening in your life again. And this is a beautiful thing for me to be asked to do something like this is really an honor. Um, basically, I'm an addict, okay? 
I'm an addict who has multiple sclerosis. So um, I was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis 13 years ago after the birth of my second daughter. Um, yeah, after the birth of my second daughter, Tiana. My, young, my eldest, Georgia, was three and Tiana was just born. I was born in South Africa in fourth road queue, I'll tell you the road, because I love that road. It was a cul-de-sac road and it is some of the happiest memories in my life. Um, and it's like we used to ride our bikes down there. And I think that was possibly the freest I ever felt in my life health-wise and mentally. It was just a beautiful time in my life. I had great friends there. I had neighbors that I played with, building tree houses, driving down the cul-de-sac, pulling green gauges off the tree, eating mulberries, collecting silkworms. It was like that. It was, it was when South Africa was still a beautiful place. Not to say it's not a beautiful place, but it was still just free and easy. It was just beautiful. Mm. And it's where I grew up. In those days, we had a nanny and I was the firstborn. Okay, So we had a nanny and apparently, I don't remember this, I used to wake up in the cot and I couldn't stand up. I just was like limp mm. every time I woke up. And my nanny, Rebecca, said to my mom, because for me, I was my mom's firstborn. She didn't know any different. Said, there's something wrong with this kid. It's not normal that every time she sleeps, she can't get up. My mother took me to doctors from place to place. And in fact, they all thought my mother was loopy. Like there was absolutely nothing wrong with me because the disease that I have is intermittent. It's hyperkalemic periodic paralysis. When you get too much potassium in your body, you limp. So every time she would take me to a doctor, I assume I would probably be perfect. <laughs> so, and knowing the person I am, 100%. So she took me from doctor to doctor. They thought she was bonkers. I took, I don't know, someone finally kind of thought, no, there's something not right. Anyway, I was take, I flew with my mom and my grand to the St. Louis Hospital, the Jerry Barnes Hospital in St. Louis on a super, super apex ticket because in those days, those were like the cheapest tickets. <laughs> and off we went. My father stayed with my brother and I went to the St. Louis Hospital and um, eventually... They, put, they did a muscle biopsy and they found out that I have this disease, which is like one in every five million kind of thing. It's, a, it's insane. I spent a great part of my youth in hospitals. And then I would go like every Friday with my mom and my late aunt Erica and to the Joburg Gen Hospital and sit on these orange chairs on the sixth floor. I will never forget. I used to park on the sixth floor go to the sixth floor and they would take my blood every Friday to see how my potassium was. And that I spent a great deal of my youth in the hospitals. Uh, that was hard, but I, but I got through it. You know, I would say I have only started thinking of the part that pay, played in my life yeah. later, once I got into Camino and whatever, because I think I just, I completely blocked it out. Yeah. I, you know, I was different to my friends, but I was still cool. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, so you did you didn't feel at the time that it impacted your your childhood, or you know, were you able to still kind of play normally during the day? Was it just something that affected you when you were sleeping, or did it have no impact during the day? 
I wasn't able to do what my friends could do because if I did too much exercise, I would just literally go limp and I couldn't move. Mm. And my friends spent a great deal of time lagging me around school. Mm. But I was a great um, asset to them in the sense that if anyone was ever running late for class, I had a hundred best friends. Tiny, 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 your legs are sore, your legs are sore. No, 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 they're not. No, no, they are. We're late, we're late. And <laughs> so, so, you know, like that, I was, you know, and, and I think the fact that my personality, even as a youngster was one of like, just push on through. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's a South African mentality or it's just, it's kind of, I've always had the mentality of HTFU. I don't know if I can swear in this podcast. I'm not going to pardon can. the F You can up. swear. Pardon the F up. HTFU, pardon the fuck up. So, you know, mm-hmm. so I kind of just went with it. Like that, and I didn't think too much of it. For me, I was still playing tennis, which was my dream. I love tennis. I played tennis four times a week. I was a great tennis player. I had brilliant friends. I, I, I just never thought about that. But I would say now looking back, then at the age of 11, I had this amazing doctor. Um, he was his name was Dr. Heim Isaacs. I will never forget him. He worked in the Listen to Esselin Towers in Hillbrow. Those days, Hillbrow was so cool. Um, I don't know, you were, it's like it's it's downtown, but okay. now if you go downtown in Johannesburg, I don't know if you come out the same person. So, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but yeah, but we used to go. I think I had an appointment with him once a month. We'd go in there, there was a milky lane underneath there, so it was like a treat, okay. Go, go to Milky Lane, go see Harm Isaacs. I loved Harm Isaacs. I still have an affinity to doctors. My friends laugh at me. I can fall in love with a doctor in one second. He can look, doesn't have to, doesn't have to look like anything, but just the fact that he's clever and he's caring of me, I'm like, oh my God, I love you. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> so like maybe a bit of idolizing going on there as a doctor. 100%. And the fact that I kind of see myself as a doctor, but, you know, I'm not a qualified doctor, but some of my friends think I'm qualified. I, I can medicate. Well, that's also perhaps because I'm an addict. Um, so I'm an addict doctor and a doctor. So it's, so it's a bit dangerous, a bit tricky. Yeah, like on a knife edge there. <laughs> exactly. And I've watched all seasons of Grey's Anatomy, so I'm nearly a surgeon. So... <laughs> Yeah, and, and you've got an iPhone in your pocket, which gives you immediate access to Google, Google which is that, as good as a, a medical degree. So at, the, so at the age of, I think it was 10, I went up to Esalen Towers with my mom, and I will never forget this day as long as I live. And I, te- I played tennis. Tennis was, I couldn't, I, I don't think I'd really seen myself as different to everyone else physically before that. But on this day, I went up and um, went in and used to do these tests on me. But I didn't. I had always known when he was going to test me like, for things. And being who I am, so I'm Isaacs would put like weights on my leg. And he would like make me do arm ups and push him away. But no one knew this. But secretly, I used to train for every session. So every session I had, I would like do weights before arm ups. I practice my leg ups. Like 
pushing out just so that I could be ahead of him. So that, I, that he was going to tell me I was fine because I knew what he was looking for. He was looking for muscle deterioration. So there was no way he was going to find this in me. But I didn't know that I had disappointment. It was like a sprung on me. Mm. So I hadn't practiced. And now this is what I've thought in my head for so many years, but it's just not the truth. So, mm. so I hadn't practiced and went in and he did all these things and I could see it wasn't so good. And then he, like, he would put needles in my muscle while he was doing it to check and whatever. And I came out the room and he said to me and my mom, um, Tony, no more tennis. Oh. Yeah. And I went mad, mad, mad. I think I threw something at him. I started screaming, swearing. I think at that point, my whole life, as I'd known it, ended boom. Because tennis for me was just, mm. I literally, I thought I was going to Wimbledon. I mean, I'll never forget my parents used to come to Wimbledon and my mother and father bought me home a Wimbledon t-shirt and it had Navratilova and Everett signatures, an orange t-shirt with a, with a racket in them. I've still got it. Like, you know, I was obsessed with tennis. I used to, didn't miss a game. Didn't miss a game on TV and just, I would go every, as much as I could play tennis, I would play tennis. He said to me, Tony, no more tennis. You are breaking down your muscle fast, then you can rebuild it. And I was devastated. I, I don't even want to think how much I've spoken to him. And I ran out of that room, downstairs and into the car. There was no milky lane that day. There was no anything. And I just went home. And um, I've thought about this for a long time. I don't, from that day, my memory is kind of, I don't know where I was, mm. if that makes sense. Yeah. I kind of think I went into, must have gone into depression. How old were you? Ten. Ten. And I think from there, things changed for me drastically in my life. Like, well, they didn't change for me outwardly. I think I'm realizing now through therapy that something, it was a loss. And I just pushed on mm. and just pushed it deeper and deeper into the abyss of feelings, into the abyss of feelings. Mm. And I never thought about it. And But, I mean, I would think, I mean, I had the finest times of tennis. I will never... I, it was something also my father and I did together. And, and it sounds like such a little thing, but, no. it's, but, but it's, it's not because when you're young and those are the things that you do. So is, the, is that problem with your potassium in your muscles, is, is that linked to the MS or is it a completely different condition? No, I am definitely one of a kind. So, <laughs> so okay so that, those were the early years yeah then then we're moving along swiftly to the later years okay <laughs> we'll just leave out a whole chunk of stuff because i don't even want even anyway um i then got married to my husband and 
had my first daughter, Georgia, and I still had the potassium problem, but I never really thought about it because it didn't, you know, it didn't really affect my life in the later years. At school, it was embarrassing. Now going back at school, I, I could sit in, say, because if I got a, if I had an episode, I couldn't move. So in high school, I literally could sometimes sit in math the entire day because I couldn't move out of math class. Mm. So I had like a, a day of math. The trick math was, what do you call it? Sixth grade, seventh, you know what I'm saying? Like that. Yeah. And, and the other thing was that I was kind of embarrassed in those days for someone to hold me up mm. out of the class because basically I needed a haul up. Do you know what I mean? It just depended who was there. If the boys in the next class were cute, there was not a chance I was getting hauled up. <laughs> <laughs> that is so typical. <laughs> just look cool. Just look cool. Just look cool. Doesn't matter if you're dying. Just sit here. Just like, you know, just. And, and like they didn't know that there was a problem that the, that the six, six-year girl was sitting in the corner of the class and they were in 10th grade. Like they didn't know there was something wrong. I mean, but, you know, that's how the brain works. <laughs> so anyway so moving forward 13 years ago we had our second child Tiana I just didn't feel right after Tiana just I just couldn't put it together I couldn't put it together and when I say put it together literally I couldn't I couldn't wake up to this kid in the night I couldn't get out of bed in the morning I felt completely depressed I actually thought I'd postnatal depression um, I just didn't have that spring in my step. And although I've had illnesses, I have a spring in my step, if you know me. I, I have an, I'm an energetic person. Like, you certainly are. <laughs> you are. <laughs> and, and it was gone. I, like, I would literally take my head and I pull it off the bed and I didn't, I didn't really want to do anything. I just didn't have the energy. And, you know, I did have this condition with my legs. I do, but it was a different kind of feeling. This was like an apathy. It was like a uh, pull my body along. Like, you know, I went to the gym and as a true addict, I like to overdo things. I got on the treadmill and the one thing I could still run, even though I had these episodes of hyperkalemia, like periodic paralysis, I could still run and train. My, It's not the same as MS. So I got on the treadmill and I ran. And I ran, and I ran, I pushed the speed, I pushed the speed. Anyway, I had to stop. I jumped up. There was a shooting pain in my left leg that was so severe, and I just, like, got off the treadmill, and then my speech felt funny, like a little, my tongue felt thick. And then every time I would touch something, I don't know why I'm standing and doing this to you, but Mm -hmm. say I'd walk past something and it wasn't cold but if I touched it with my left leg it would feel cold it was like a a jabbing sensation through my leg Mm -hmm. and I didn't really say anything to anyone Mm -hmm. like because I didn't know what to say but anyways I get off this treadmill and my cousin says to me I said can you hear my speech it's funny it's fine it's fine and but the funny thing is that when your tongue stick, you can feel it, but you think people can hear it. So 
anyway, I, she said, my friend said, listen, we're going for coffee to the local coffee shop, which is called Europa around the corner, come with us. I go sit there with them and I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, I, I can't do this. This is horrid. I'm sick. There's something not right. My, sp- my speech is getting worse. My sight's starting to get funny. This pain. So my cousin says to me, you know what? I'll take you to a chiropractor to see what's wrong. Okay. Anyway, yeah, it was brilliant. Go to the chiropractor and he says to me, um, you know what? I think you slipped a disc. Okay. <laughs> I said, mm-hmm. no, this isn't slipping a disc. Something's not right. Then the funny thing is he did say to me, he said, have you been feeling a bit rundown lately and a bit fluish? And as he said the rundown, I thought, fuck, Tony, you're in trouble. There's something in your immune system. I don't know why, it's just like registered something. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I went home, ran a bath, put my left leg in the bath, didn't feel. Then I put my right leg in the bath. The bath was steaming hot. I couldn't feel temperature down my left side. I got such a fright. I even feel pain. I jumped out of this bath. And I find my husband and I find my mom. I'm like, guys, I'm in trouble. Mm-hmm. Like the, the, the sensation that I couldn't feel the heat down the left side. I knew as soon as that heat, like sensation left. Anyway, they took me to my house doctor, my mom and my husband. And um, I'm smiling because my house doctor is such a funny guy. He's like, I come in and he goes, Tiny, you've got really pretty blue eyes. I'm like, okay. I think I'm tired, I don't care. What's, what's a house doctor? Is that like oh, a GP? A GP, okay. yeah, yeah. And he's like old school. He's old school. He's like, where did you get those blue eyes? I'm like, just, just cut to the chase, will you? I think yeah. I'm dying. Look at my mother. She's got blue eyes. Just sort me out now. <laughs> so anyway, I get on the bed and he measures. He felt the temperature in my right compared to my left leg. And it was completely, my left leg was boiling. My speech at this time had started slurring worse. Also, what had happened, he like asked me to walk and stand on my toes. I do tippy toes. I couldn't. Mm-hmm. And, and I started to have like a foot drop, which is, I'm not sure if you know what a foot drop is. When you walk and you like hit the floor, you, because you don't lift your foot up properly. Yeah. Anyway, he said to me, um, he found the... Rosebank Clinic and he said to me, Tony, you're going for an MRI. And I knew something was up. And my biggest fear at that point, I just thought I had a brain tumor. Yeah. Um, I didn't think of anything else. I didn't think of multiple sclerosis. I didn't think is that you're going to the job to the Rosebank Clinic. And off I went and I was petrified. I was absolutely petrified and I knew that there was something wrong I mean the truth is I'd known for a while that I wasn't right mm-hmm. and it'd been like a period of time that I was just ugh, low energy didn't want to do anything um couldn't do anything mm-hmm. just didn't have the ability I just really didn't have the ability and um yeah, so how how old were you at this point? I was 30. 
and 13 you just had your second and how old was your second. second how old was she when this happened she was nearly one nearly one she was nearly one and my eldest was three so when when he said you're going for an MRI did he say you know these are things that we're looking for or did he say did he mention no. brain tumor or anything like that no I I went to worst case scenario Mm-hmm, I was course. like, please tell me I don't have a brain tumor. He's like, Tony, it's going to be okay. He mm-hmm. he says to me now, and I do believe him that he knew straight away from multiple sclerosis because it is a very there are certain things that you look for when you're diagnosing it. Apparently, according to my new book, Gray's Anatomy book, you look for change in temperature. It's like a radical something sensory, um, walking balance. There's certain things that you look for. It's, it's, kind of an easy diagnosis and mine was an easy diagnosis he knew straight away mm-hmm. he, he he didn't even kind of have to get me scanned mm-hmm. how um, is it how is it diagnosed on an mri scan what do they because i'm not actually sure how multiple sclerosis affects your body what is what does it do to your your nervous system so, you, so you've got lesions on your brain and the your blood you eat away at the myelin sheath that protects your nerves okay. so I have no protection around certain nerves and so what happens is I will say I send a message to my foot foot sit up and foot doesn't want to sit up because the message because of the myelin sheath being damaged doesn't go to that foot so he sent you for the scan and how long did you have to wait before you got the results it was the next day. Oh, wow. I was quite really lucky. So I went to bed that night and yeah, the next day I got the results. So I walked in there with my mother and my husband. He said, sit down, sat down. And he said, um, you know, it's hard for me to tell you this. So I'm not even really sure what he said. He said, the scans that show that you have multiple sclerosis. Mm. And at that point, life as I knew it ended. I think I was sitting in between my husband and my mother. Mm. And, oh God, I don't even know how to tell you. I felt like my life had been taken from me. But I didn't know what to say to them. Mm. Um, to say to your mum and your husband, you mean? Yeah. Because uh, I just saw their faces also. Mm. Mm. And and I think it's human nature to go into that like want to protect the people around us from the pain too, because yeah. that, that and that's what I've learned being in the program of recovery. It's and you know that's codependence. It's team. It's like it's I, I don't want to feel this. So hang on a second. I'm okay. I will be okay. And I think from that moment, in some ways, I went into that, I will be okay, but is everyone else around me going to be okay? So let me manage them because I can't really manage myself, nor do I want to. Mm. Does that make sense? I mean, yeah, I I can't begin to imagine what that was like because I've I've never sat in that chair. Yeah. You know, I've not, I've not, I wasn't there. I wasn't you. I haven't had that. I haven't been given that diagnosis. So, I mean, I can just try to imagine, but I think I can understand 
the feeling of wanting to protect the people around you because it yeah, sounds like just, you felt you felt responsible for them like, yes I'm only looking at this now because I've done been doing so much work on myself and also because I think at that moment I just went into okay okay I've got this this is shit this sucks like this sucks this is hard growing up in Johannesburg there was a shopping center called Eastgate it was, um, and there was a, there was a multiple sclerosis charity, and I will never forget this. There was a woman that stood outside the one door of Eastgate, and there was a blonde, like that yucky yellow blonde, like a painted blonde on her hair, um, mm. doll, and her leg was in a caliper, and she used to always say, give money to multiple sclerosis. And I was like, what's multiple sclerosis? I never, but I remember this doll, and I remember that thing, and at that moment, when he said multiple sclerosis, I thought, oh, my God, am I going to be that doll? Am <sighs> I that doll? And and then I just went into the, I think, to the point that I was like, you know what? Okay, I've had shit before. I had my hyperkademic. I've had this. I've lost people in my life that are very close to me. I'm just going to do what I know how to do. I am going to put a positive spin on this and go forward because I don't want... I don't want to change my life, basically. And I don't want to, I am not ready to accept that I am defective, if that makes sense. Mm. So you know what? If I don't accept that I'm defective, maybe the people around me won't treat me defectively and I will control the world and my, and my people. And, and, and now when I look at it, I think that is exactly what I did. And I, I just wasn't ready to go. I was 30 years old. Yeah. I had my second child. Um, I didn't want this. No. I mean, you know, who wants it? But if I would have said there and then, this is terrible, this is hard, this is shocking, which I should have done in hindsight, because it would have saved me a lot of heartache in later years. But I didn't know how to because I was young. Or, for what, or, or maybe it just wasn't the time. Mm. which, you know, I'm not, hindsight is an exact science and I'm never going to beat myself up because I've learned a lot along the way, but I just was not ready to go there. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like you were obviously afraid and you didn't want to relinquish control of your life. And so you reacted by trying to really control your life. <laughs> Would you say Katie, that's what it was? But Katie, a hundred billion percent. And and then and there, I thought I was the supermodel and the star and the billboard poster for MS. This is what people should do. People should get MS. They should put on a smile on their face. I don't really need to look at, you know what, they'll be okay. That'd be hard. Just push on through. But I didn't allow myself. I don't think I properly did the Elizabeth Kubler-Ross stages. Not I don't, not, I don't think, 100% didn't. I didn't allow myself to. Mm. I had too much, it was too much pride. I come from a family, and I am not blaming my parents, one, but because I love them dearly, and God, that they support me, and do they support me. But I come from a family 
of doers and not of losers, if you know what I mean. Mm. We get on with it. We, we lose people, we move on. We have hardships, we move on. We, we, well, that, you know, for me, that's what I've, I've seen. And, and I will never forget something my father said to me. And it is only, he only said it to me because he loves me so much. He just didn't want me to be sad. When I came home, I think one of his friends was at the house and he like put his arms around me and he said, look how pretty my Tony looks. Look how good she looks. She's got this. She'll be okay. <laughs> and, and that wasn't from anything but because he didn't want to feel it and he didn't want me to feel it. And, and, and if it looks good, it will be okay. Wow, you know, and I and I really do think that, and I, and it's and it's not, you know, and I say it, and I thought it too, I thought it too. I was like, come home, get dressed, pull yourself together, tone. It was George's birthday party shortly thereafter. Let's have the birthday party. Darren, the magician, will come. Nothing's going to change, but everything had changed. Yeah, but I hadn't allowed for that change because I just didn't want I didn't want to be different I was 30 years old I don't want my kids to be different but but now I'm learning it's okay it's okay to feel sad and it's okay to be different and it's okay to feel lost and it's okay to hurt and it's okay to show it because the proudest moments for me, and this is what I've learned in recovery, I fell down so hard in my addiction. And it's no, it's no wonder it came to me addiction. I always was an addict, but it's no wonder. Because I was running. I was running and looking and looking and searching. You know, It was like, well, what's next? And, and, and because I, was, I just wanted to numb the pain. Mm. It was like, I just wanted to be okay. I wanted to be okay so badly and I didn't want to think that anything was going to touch me or hurt me. And in so much so that I, I even named my charity MS Positive. And, and now I'm seeing that it did hurt a lot. You know, I sit here today and I think because I'm in this program and I'm doing so much work, the, the years I lost out with my, with my eldest daughter and I have a, a load of sadness for that I went into everything's fine but nothing's fine and I wasn't there do do you know what I'm saying yeah so I'm trying to I through the program of recovery I'm trying to forgive myself for those times not sure I ever will but I have to find a place and trying to forgive myself for my addiction which and I'm not saying this is a positive spin on life and giving you, I'm giving you, for that I'm grateful for what I've been through because the world has opened up to me and I have come into contact with some of the, the most beautiful people. I mean, from my therapist at the start to my journey to Camino, to my therapist now, I really, I have been surrounded by the most beautiful things have started happening to me and to your into recovery. And this, and I have to say, Katie, they say it takes a year for things to start feeling okay. And this, for me, 
sitting here in my house doing this with you is a blessing. It's a beautiful thing. It's a start of beautiful things. Mm, thank you. I mean, I'm, I feel so honoured and really blessed and grateful that you have felt comfortable to talk to me about this so openly today because I know before we started the interview, you also explained that this was a bit like a coming out for you because you don't know actually how many people in your life know about your history and know about your addiction. And, and I felt, I suddenly, when you said that to me, I felt this huge kind of responsibility because I didn't know actually that I didn't know until you told me that, that that was the case. You know what, Casey, it's funny that because when I went into rehab, when um, last year, April, I was so embarrassed. I thought, Tony, how can this have happened to you? How can people, how can you let people know you're a mother, you run a charity, your kids go to school? You know, it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing. But you know what's embarrassing? What's embarrassing, I've learned, is not to pick yourself up and take, and take the help that you've been getting. I am actually proud of myself for walking this line. Because going into recovery has been one of, I've, listen, I've dealt with stuff in my life, but for going into recovery has been one of the hardest but most beautiful things I've ever done. And in the beginning, I was like, I remember phoning my husband from Camino, going like, who knows? And he's like, Tony, what are you, what are you hiding? What are you hiding? And the more I get into this program, what am I? So, so I've never hidden it, but I just don't know who knows. And, and the funny thing is because I've always said I wonder, I'd, I'd like to see how things happen because when I was diagnosed with MS and started the charity, people were like, oh, my God, yeah, that's amazing that you started a charity. But now I really believe that through my medical issues, through my health when I was young, through my MS, I'm not saying I wasn't an addict before and that made me an addict because you're born an addict and addiction is an illness. Mm. and I was a sick person but you know I really think there is something about addiction and not I think I know that there's something about addiction and trauma mm. and it's a, and it's something I really want to look at going forward I'm not saying I'm going to I'd like to because I'm not making any promises anymore because those promises scare me <laughs> but it's <laughs> it's something I'd really like to look at because I do believe the trauma bonds from our past and the trauma, the traumatic experiences that we have lead us to the places we go because we have no other tools. Well, I had no other tools but the tool to numb it. Mm. We had no choices because, because the past was so sore. The future was so scary. So you just want to sit in that place. And that's what addiction is. You, you don't move. You sit in the same spot, you don't grow. So by substance abusing, you, you stop, you'll stop your life. And as sore as that is, it's sometimes less sore than seeing the past or looking to the future. But the one thing and, and that I've learned, what I'm learning, is surrender is so much easier. <laughs> <laughs> it really is. Because when I'm surrendered, I'm not trying to control. And as soon and listen. I, I, I was in rehab for five months. I mean, probably one of the longest standing Camino patients. And then because I had so much to go through, but 
when I, I had to go every week and admit in group like this, hi, I'm Tony, I am a control freak. <laughs> and, and I mean, in the beginning, I was like, well, okay, that's enough. But you people really hate me. Is it because I'm Jewish that I have to say this? What is it? Just come on. You know, leave me now. And now going through the program, I know why I had to say that because I am Tony, I'm a control freak. And I try, like chapter four of the big book speaks about control, that we try be the, the puppeteer, you know, the, running the show as an addict. And I've had to relinquish that control because when I run the show, it all goes tits up. But when I let the good guy up there or the good girl, whichever way you want to look at him, up there, down there, wherever, all around, run the show, it seems to go a lot better. Funny that. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the book you reference, is that something that you get through the program in rehab? No, it's, what's an, what's the, that? It's, it's the Alcoholics Anonymous book okay. or the NA book. Yeah, it's the other Bible that I read. So, you know, it's been very, very helpful to me. And listen, I've had a beautiful experience. I'm very lucky. Um, I've had my ups, I've had my downs. It's been hard. I've had hard times with family relationships. I have burnt a lot of bridges with my family. I have to work on them, a lot of trust issues. It's been hard. But but slowly I'm getting there. But mm -hmm. You know, I have a, I'm surrounded by an amazing team, an amazing team of therapists, an amazing team of friends that I call my board of trustees, actually. <laughs> so I've decided, I've decided running my life is like running a business. You can't run your life unless you have good people around you. I, left to my own devices, make bad decisions. You know, I've learned. If you want to go left, if I want to go left, I go right. So when I was in Camino... My therapist, Ryan, whom I refer to now as Father Ryan, said to me, he said, Tony, you know, I think you need a board of trustees. You need some, he said, like you have one in your charity, you need some good friends that you can rely on. And I have five amazing friends. They're an international board. Some of them are in South Africa, some in London. <laughs> and they are the people, they're not in recovery, but they might as well be. They are my people that I go to when I feel like I'm going over the edge, when I could possibly be making the wrong decision. And if three of them say to me, Tony, two, they say bad decision. I know it's a bad decision. but mm. I, And it's really helped me that. Mm. Like, do you think that, um, that you get to the point of trusting yourself or do you think that the board of trustees will be like a permanent fixture in your decision making for things well you know what the program teaches us that on our own we are problematic but together as a group we are good okay and yes there will be times that is is helping that I am learning slowly that there are certain things I don't need to ask. But I think when it comes to any major decisions or when it's something that I kind of, and I've not, when I say kind of, I kind of know is not the right decision, but my addict brain could wangle it right. 
<laughs> do, do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. When you've got that little conscience or something saying, mm, yes. I don't know about this, Tony. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. That is when I 100% have to go to the board of trustees. Okay. <laughs> It's like a little, but, a little, a little alarm in your head saying, "Yes, this isn't." Just check this quite, out. Just yeah. check this out. <laughs> Just check this out, Tony, because I don't know if you're quite looking at it the right way. How do you think your ADHD plays a part in decision making? Like, does that, <laughs> does that also like they must be linked somehow as well? <laughs> yeah. Good question. Very good question. <laughs> my ADHD, my my ADHD and impulse impulsivity is yeah huge. I am so through recovery, through my therapist Jody, whom I love, through my Lorraine, my ADHD coach, through my psychiatrist Doctor G, who's the bomb. They're all just the bomb. I am learning to pause. That's what I'm learning. And that it's, it's, it's hard. The ADHD is hard. For me, the ADHD is hard because it's hard to get me to sit and focus on something for a long time. And it's hard to get me down. But, but I'll tell you where Lorraine has done this. I'm busy writing a lot lately. And I'm loving it. And it's keeping me calm and I found a passion. Mm. And that's helping. But, you know, I have to, the ADHD definitely, well, because I have, I just have no pause, but I'm learning to have a pause. But that's also addiction, ADHD addiction. You know, um, I have a lot of ADHD toys that I play with when I'm, I mean, if you're sitting here, while we're doing this, I've got my little beads and stuff. Um, I'm learning to manage it. I'm yeah. trying to because because I'm not going to be medicated, so I have to find another way. And I remember on the very first day of our counselling course together, you said, yeah. you know, as your in, part of your introduction was, you know, what I really want is to make it to the end of this course. Yeah. And and you know, full disclosure, I don't know if I'm going to be here at the end because I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to sit here sit still like all day every day for the whole week and and get to the end and you did you you were right there very active until the very last minute of the course like you were there well exactly that and that is my fear so now I like that taught me that I can finish something when I wake up in the morning my head is a very dangerous place. It feels like there's so much going on in it. But now I know, I've learned that if I stick my head in a shower underwater, first thing in the morning, it goes. Wow. It just kind of brings me back to normality. Whether it's those 10 minutes in the bath or 15 minutes of just calmness, just lie in bed for a little bit, then get into the bath, wet my hair, impose myself in water, I can then breathe and look at the day. Throughout this past year, I mean, you must have gone through so much from a young age, you know, from kind of 10 years old, you've been trying to 
have control when you felt like, you know, things were being taken away from you. So this past year, I can't even kind of begin to imagine like where you started, like from to go through your whole life. I mean, it's no wonder really that you were in the rehab for five months. I mean, you must have had a lot to kind of work through in that time. Um, Like, what was it that made you think, do you know what? Like, this is it. I, I'm going to go to rehab. Like, was that you or did your husband suggest it? What What was it that prompted that change? Okay, we're going to play the honesty game here. Um, <laughs> I could, uh, so the honesty if, game if is, you, you don't have to answer. No, no. I'm, listen, Katie, I am here to be honest. I'm in a program of honesty and I want to be as honest as I can. And also, you know, I... As I'm saying, I really hope this can help other people be honest with if they have problems. And I think my 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 fear for other people is other people living with illnesses and long-term illnesses like multiple sclerosis, like cancer, like things like that. I bet to have addiction issues because I, I believe that now that I've gone see it. It goes hand in hand. And if this can help them come out or be honest or get help or do whatever, that's another way I'd like my life to go in time, you know, mm. because I 100% believe that illness and trauma, the trauma of illness brings, lets this happen. Mm. And when I sit in the rooms in Charing Cross getting my treatment and I look at some of the people there and I see them, I'm like, Addict, not an addict, addict, not an addict. You can see it. I'm starting to now see it because we see each, we we can see each other in each other. And you know, and this has been the this has been so helpful to me. But yeah, so what happened was I had been feeling so I've been feeling like a fraud for so long. I was running this charity for MS positive. I was living my family I wasn't connecting with anyone I was fighting with my family I was moody I was dragging Katie I was dragging Mm. I was basically stuck in my cupboard you know with drugs with drugs Mm. because I um I didn't want to come out the cupboard I didn't want to come out the cupboard because that was the real life and you know I wasn't, I wasn't enjoying anything. There was nothing whole. Um, I had started to be my, I think my MS had started to decline a bit. And it had always been, I'd always prided myself on my physical appearance and that I would never, I would never decline. I believe that I would be the one MS person that would beat this. Mm. I would be, I would be that person, the different person, you know, I would, I would find that I was searching for the Holy Grail as well. I was going to conferences in Berlin on MS. I was searching for the biggest and better treatment. Um, I was on a journey. I, I just wasn't letting this disease get me. But at the same time that I wasn't letting MS get me, I was using cocaine to get up and get out because it gave me a buzz and it helped me to get up and out. So, because MS is quite debilitating in terms of your tiredness and your lethargy, 
So in the beginning, I literally thought I had found the holy grail. Cocaine cured MS. Like I was willing to stand on a podium to say, if you snort a line, you will have energy. Try it. (laughs) Because in the beginning... (laughs) You know, I mean, I can laugh if we know each other, but you know, that's not funny. But yeah, it no, is yeah, a funny side. This is yes, this is this is how sick my sick my thinking was that I really I couldn't and I basically I, I mean I think sometimes when I was lying in bed not sleeping at night, I was thinking of writing theses to doctors to tell them how this would help. Like they were not they were not helping people by not giving them cocaine. Literally, this was my thinking. Mm-hmm. And um, so I'd started off like that. And in the beginning, it worked to charm, Katie. Um, like any drug addict will tell you, in the beginning, drugs are good. Drugs not look good, they feel good. They don't, it doesn't feel so bad. So, so it was working, it was getting me up, getting me buzzed. But eventually, as anything too good, too simple and not and, and dangerous and dirty and the devil, it's going to bring you down. And eventually, my life just started to slowly see the changes, but I, I couldn't see it enough. And I, I just wasn't me. I didn't really want to go out because I was high. I didn't want to see people because I couldn't. I couldn't communicate. I then became depressed. I... Katie, it was just, it was just awful. My family life started turning. My house, my house that's a happy home filled with flowers and love and colour, um, just wasn't happy because I wasn't happy. Mm-hmm. The captain of the ship was, 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 was high and was driving the wrong way. Yeah. So I needed an intervention. I needed ma- Major Tom to ground control. Like, hang on a second. Mm. you know and my husband who we've been married for 20 years is my best friend in my whole life I mean, we were best friends before we got married um I was losing him he you know it was things were starting to change and my kids I could just see the sadness in my kids and everyone around me and I my mother then flew to London and um, I could be brutally frank and honest yeah and collected my mother's a very good private detective mm-hmm. as am I I've learned some things from her too she collected my husband and the family were in Courchevel on holiday and Basically, she collected, found some cocaine wrappers around the house, put them in a Selfridges bag, <coughs> and did me the biggest favor of my life. She waited for my husband to come back from Courchevel with the kids, thank God, because if she had done it on her own, I would have gone, because it's my mother. What do we listen to our mothers? I would have told her she's mad, she's imagining it, uh, diving at the table. And she waited for my husband to come home and she pulled out the Selfridges bag with my husband and said, and my husband said, you've got two choices, rehab 
or lose the kids. Shit. And yeah. And that's where I went. And it was, I was so scared. But in fact, as scared as I was, Katie, I felt relieved. Yeah. Because I knew that I couldn't go on like this anymore. Mm. I didn't want to go on like this anymore. My circle in addiction, what happens is things become smaller and smaller because you just don't want to go out. You don't want to see it. My life is just so small Mm. and so sad and so sad. And my kids were sad and my husband was sad and my parents were sad and I was sad and I was hurting. And I just, I just didn't want to feel that pain anymore. Yeah. And yeah, and it was the best thing that ever happened to me. Really. Mm. And you know, it's like you think to yourself, how can that be the best thing that ever happened to you? Because finally, someone helped me to start looking at myself and where I was Mm. and I could see the world I could see the world I mean the first few weeks of rehab I was like oh my god those are trees those are dogs those are other people oh that's the way we speak to people you know because you lose everything Mm. and it was hard. It was hard. Camino was hard. Camino is a beautiful place and the therapists there were amazing, but it was a strict place. I mean, I'll never forget getting there and the one lady said to me, would you like a walker? <laughs> I nearly took Mina's head off her shoulders. I said, a walker? Would you like a fucking walker? I was like, and now I'm thinking, like a year later, what would I say? I would say, no, thank you. Because there was no surrender in me. I was so angry, so angry that I had multiple sclerosis, so angry that I was different. I was like, do I look like I'm walking that bad? And now, you know, the other day I went to the doctor um, and I was walking out the surgery and this lovely old man says to me, Jesus, you must have kicked someone very hard because of my limp. And I just started to laugh. But the old me would have, would have gone into him. Mm. I, I was like, yeah, you should see my husband. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, things have definitely changed. It's the calm, it's the pause, it's the it's life on life's terms, as they say. It's just everything. It's all those cliches in recovery or not, whatever you want to use. It's just it's just a different life for me. And it's still flipping hard and there's still times that I battle. And I mean I I've had like a um over the past, so last week, um, I started getting very dizzy and one of my things from MS is vertigo. Mm. And I've got very bad vertigo and I landed up going to the hospital and having to go on like a really strong dose of steroids and that. But I can't explain the difference in me, like the fear, like, you know, I still do the beauty pageant at the hospital when I, when I say beauty pageant. I, there's like a corridor that we all 
all the MS patients walk down where you have to get the treatment. And I'm always watching the people who walks better than me, who walks better than me. But now, like the other day, I thought to myself, oh, you know what, Tony, that guy might walk better than you, but maybe his cognitive's not as good as yours, but I never had that before. Mm. I just, I wanted to look and be perfect, but now I'm okay with how I walk. I'm getting okay. Some days it's sore, some days, but, but I've, I think I've started to surrender to the fact that this is what it is. You know, I battled so much with it in the beginning and my psychiatrist said to me, you know, Tony, how about doing this? You are not your MS. Mm-hmm. When you walk into a room, put your MS on a chair and let it sit there and you enjoy the room. Mm-hmm. I, I've rea- I'm realizing I'm not judged by my multiple sclerosis. I was judging myself by my limp, by the, the the aesthetic, the that, because that was what was so important to me in addiction because I felt so out of control inside. It was all about how I looked on the outside. Mm. But now it's, it's actually okay. Yeah, I always remember you saying that during the, the counselling course about, you know, you are not your diagnosis and about the, the MS sitting on the chair. Yeah, uh, I thought that was really powerful. And I'm sure lots of people can take solace in that you know for whatever reason that they're maybe yeah. you know they might be dealing with personally uh, yeah and I hope so because I think that has really helped me surrender it's like you know you we with only people we are is the person inside and I'm learning that because before recovery I'm, okay, listen, I'm still controlling. I'm not going to say I don't try to control my husband because if he has that, then he'll think like it's a free card and he can do what he wants, eat what he wants, wear what he wants. It's not going to happen yet, okay? I'm not I'm not that surrendered and healed. But, <laughs> but I'm slowly learning that I am me. I need my kids to be them and I need my husband to be him. And it's a very hard thing to do, to let go of control. And yes, I do try to take my control back. But the one thing I'm realizing is when I'm trying to take my control back, why am I trying to? It's because I'm feeling out of control. So when I'm trying to control the people around me, it's simply because I, Tony, am feeling out of control. Mm. I'm so grateful for you being so open and just sharing all of that about your life you know from the beginning but particularly you know the last year and going into rehab I mean how do you feel like knowing that it's going to be out there like is it something that you'll kind of pass on to to people that you know to kind of say here do you want to listen definitely listen to my my coming out a hundred percent a hundred percent I am you know what? Shame lives in the dark and dies in the light. So a hundred percent. And I, I honestly, I'm so honored to have had to do this. This for me is like a, a dream country. First of all, I love talking. I mean, I could just talk all day. I love people. I had an immediate affiliation to you. Um, and I am so happy. I spent so much time in rehab and over the last year thinking, 
as I as I've written in my journal, three strikes and you're out. You know, I feel like I've had three chances at life. The first was I got diagnosed with hyperkalemia. Then I got diagnosed with MS, now addiction. I there's nothing nothing's just by chance. So I there's some you know, I feel like whether it happens or whether or not, whether it's a pipe dream, because as an ADHD and an addict, I have lots of pipe dreams. I mean, I've said that to you from the beginning, but I would like to find a way to, even if it's with my charities, tweak it a bit and like do MS, MS and addiction or illness and addiction, you know, mm-hmm. something like that with it. Because I really do feel those two things go hand in hand. What would you say, I mean, to someone who, or is there anything you can say to somebody who has an addiction, but maybe, you know, they're not at the stage of doing, getting into rehab? Like, is it, do you think it takes an intervention or can people decide themselves to, to make that step? You know, everyone's rock bottom is different and it takes what it takes. And hopefully you'll know when you know. You know, I, before I went into Camino, I spent a short time in a place called the Sanctuary. Um, I spent 10 days there. It was another rehab. It was literally, it was very different to Camino. I literally kind of panicked for my life. I think my husband wanted to shock me into never using a gay. There was a guy, Matt, there who I absolutely adored. And he explained to me something that I'll never forget. Everyone's rock bottom is different. Financial rock bottom hadn't hit me, thank God. But, it's you know, they say, they call it the yet in recovery. It hasn't yet happened. But I had a spiritual rock bottom. Mm. It got to the point that I looked in the mirror and I saw the devil. Well, not the deal. I saw someone I didn't like. I just, because my insides did not match my outsides. Mm. I was so hurt inside. So whatever I put on, I didn't feel good. Whatever anyone would say to me, I couldn't accept it because I just felt so horrible inside. Spiritually, I was dead. I had no connection to God, to a higher power, to anything. I just had lost it completely. And... That for me was why I had to go. I just believe we know when we know. Mm-hmm. You know, the first few weeks in Camino, I was so bored in the morning because I was so used to chaos. I would wake up in the morning at home, and the night before, I had fought with people. I'd fought with my husband, my kids. I'd sent horrible texts. And everything, I could wake up, and there was, I had to patch things up. It was a patch job. Mm-hmm. And now I was waking up in Camino. First of all, I didn't have a phone. to take your phone away from me. But I was calm. I hadn't done anything. It had just been a normal day. There was no chaos. There was no drama. And it took me a while to get used to the fact that I don't want the drama. Mm. Because I had been feeding off that drama. Because that's what an addict does. You feed off the drama. Because you don't want to look at yourself. So you, take, you push it outside and you feed off the drama. And I just wasn't used to that. Well, I mean, I, I'm so grateful and 
relieved that you went through what you did otherwise I would have never had the opportunity to meet you and to make that connection with you and I've I've learned a lot from you and I love your energy and you are a really great person to be around and I I really am so pleased that I got to cross paths with you and I hope that yeah when this COVID thing dies down um, and I'm in London I hope that we can finally meet face to face. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, dinner together case you come into my house for dinner i can't wait <laughs> i can't wait either you've um, got to bring your hot husband <laughs> <laughs> i will yeah he's good for that <laughs> yeah, he's, I mean, I, the, the day i saw him in the thing i was like whoa we we will <laughs> oh thank you and tony gorgeous kids Oh, you're so amazing. Thank you, Tony. You're so brave, like just to be honest. And I love what you said about the shame. You know, it dies in the light. And I really hope that you feel that. Thank you. Thank you. Have a beautiful day. You too. Big love. Big love. I know you get down sometimes.